The Gospel of Mark is really an amazing Gospel as it gives us these wonderful portraits of who Jesus is. And I think we have the tendency in terms of our own culture to see brevity as a lack of importance. (laughs) Things being short means, well, it's not as important. If it's really big or long, then it must have greater value. And sometimes we have the tendency to come like to Mark's gospel and quickly run through uh, these scenes that are in Mark. And I think sometimes the reason why is because we go, oh, well, Matthew has a fuller explanation of that. And so we might kind of run through what Mark is doing here. As was just read for us in this scene in the baptism of Jesus, it seems so short and so okay, and we, you have the tendency just to, to go right on and continue in the narrative. And yet what Mark does here in this portrayal of Jesus is unique uh, from the other Gospels in, in many aspects that we're going to look at. One of the questions that often comes up when we look at the baptism of Jesus is, Why was Jesus baptized? That's perhaps one of the biggest things. Well, this doesn't make any sense. Baptism being for the forgiveness of sins, why would we see Jesus be baptized? And one of the things that we're going to get to see this morning is what Mark is showing for us is that this baptism of Jesus is the coronation of Jesus on the throne. And so let's look at that then this morning. You'll notice as this opens for us in Mark 1 and verse 9, In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee, and he was baptized by John in, in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open, And the Spirit descending on him like a dove. Let's break down what Mark just gives for us. First, notice we have to state something that is obvious, and it's unfortunate. We have to state the obvious, but we will state the obvious. When he came up out of the water, that's what baptism is, is immersion in water. Uh, We are in a culture right now that baptism seems to be any number of ideas. And yet, every time you ever see baptism in the New Testament, it is always pictured as going into water and coming up out of water. And so we see also in the baptism of Jesus that it is a going down into the water. And the language even tells us here when he came up out of the water. But notice what happens when he comes up out of the water. The wording here is that the heavens were torn open. That's different from the other gospel accounts. And the word that is used here is not a word of the heavens opening. Some translations just say the heavens were opened. And that's not strong enough to the language of what this is saying. It is a violent word of a tearing open. And the picture that is being given is as if God Himself were tearing open the sky and tearing apart the heavens and is coming down. In fact, when Mark uses this same Greek word over at the end of his Gospel account, it's the word that is used when the curtain is torn apart at the crucifixion of Jesus. Same word right there is a violent tearing apart that is happening. And so as you read that, you have to ask, well, why are you telling us this? 
Is this just simply, you know, story time? Hey, isn't that neat that the heavens were torn apart? They were torn open, and here is, here is the Father and this voice and all of that. We've noted at the beginning of our study of the Gospel of Mark that what the Gospel of Mark is doing is showing us how this is the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. Remember, Mark 1.1. This is the beginning of the good news of Jesus the Christ, the Son of God, as it is written by Isaiah the prophet. And so this is a layout then of the gospel that is proclaimed in Isaiah's prophecy, now being fulfilled in Mark's gospel. What we're going to get to see this morning, I think, is absolutely exciting is all of these pictures that are found in Isaiah now being fulfilled and shown in this very gospel. For example, in this idea of the heavens being torn apart or torn open, this comes from Isaiah 64. I want to give you a little bit of context for a minute before we read the first few verses of Isaiah 64. In Isaiah 63, you have a description of the rebellion of the nation of Israel. They are described as failing in God's plan and in God's mission. They rebelled against Him is the language that's used. We have been studying the book of Exodus. We're already getting a sense of that rebellion as they are on their way to the promised land. And in the process of describing Israel's rebellion, the prophet is crying out that God would revisit Israel as He had done back in the days of the Exodus. Oh, for the days of Moses. Let that happen again is what's being described. And then after calling for this new exodus, after pleading for the rebellion and describing the rebellion of of Israel, he then is crying out to God for a deliverance. Oh, that God would do something, that God would act, that He would intervene and show His people mercy. Because remember in Isaiah's days, the description of judgment upon the people, and they're going to be carried off into captivity. And here is Isaiah saying, we need a new exodus, God. We need you to intervene. We need you to come and bring us mercy and deliver us like in the days of old. Deliver us as it was in the days of Moses to bring about that redemption that you would save us. And now listen to Isaiah 64 verse 1 now in that context. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake in your presence, as when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, and that the nations might tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down, the mountains quaked at your presence." Notice the resonance to Exodus and when God came down at Mount Sinai, the mountain quaked and we saw all the wonders. That's what he's relating to. But notice he's not just reminiscing about the past. Verse one, he begins, oh, that you would do it again, that you would tear the heavens and come down. Do it like you did back in Exodus 19 when you came down on that mountain and the mountain shook and the fire and the nations trembled at your presence and you did these awesome things. Would you do it again is how Isaiah prophesies. And the language there of saying that you would tear apart the heavens and come down again relates to what Mark is identifying here by using this language and not just merely saying, oh, and the heavens were opened. 
No, the heavens were torn apart of the sleep. The heavens are torn open as God is intervening at this moment. That what Mark is doing is picturing for us, this is exactly what Isaiah was longing for. That this baptism seen as the initiation of the enthronement of Jesus who is going to be the rescuer, who is going to deliver the people. This is the new exodus that God has come down again. And this will be the moment for not only Israel's deliverance, but also the deliverance of the world. And so just in the language, tearing apart the heavens. And not only that, which says that the heavens being torn open and the spirit descended on him like a dove, which also comes from Isaiah. Isaiah 11 and verse 1, listen to the prophecy about what will happen regarding the Christ when he comes. Isaiah 11 and verse 1, it reads, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest on him, a spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. Now listen to what else goes with that. He shall not judge by what his eyes see, or decide disputes by what his ears hear, But with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Notice the scene here how Isaiah ties together is so when the stump of Jesse, the root of Jesse comes, the Messiah, he says the spirit of the Lord is going to rest upon him so that he is pleasing to God and he is his delight will be in the fear of God. But notice what else is going to happen. Notice it's a description of his reign. It's a description of his rule. He will not rule by the things that he sees. He will not be one who is partial. He will not be pulled by things. And that idea of what he sees is very important. Even in our own justice system, how do we picture Lady Justice? Blindfolded. Only going to judge with righteousness and equity, not by what you see. And notice here is the picture of when he comes, when Christ arrives, he will judge in righteousness. He will rule. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. He will bring judgment. Here is the rule of God. And so the baptism of Jesus is again picturing this coronation of a king. When he comes, he is tearing the heavens open. This is the new Exodus salvation moment in which he is going to now sit on the throne and to begin his rule. And now he's going to lead his people. If you've been coming on Sunday nights and been working through Exodus with us together, you will see these clear connections being made because what we've seen is this beautiful scene of the story of the Exodus of Moses passing through the Red Sea. The heavens are opened and God comes down visibly at Mount Sinai. And now what we are able to see is Jesus passing through the waters of the Jordan River. And now the heavens are torn apart. And now we have God coming down visibly. We are recreating the whole Exodus narrative that Jesus is the new deliverer who has come to save the world. And not only is he the deliverer and the rescuer for sins, but he is also enthroned as king. 
In fact, this is what the voice of heaven connects to. Notice you have the heavens torn open in verse 10. And the spirit descending on him like a dove, which I have to say something, I, you know, I cannot help myself. Similes and metaphors. Okay? It doesn't say he was a dove. But that's the way he came down, was in that mechanism of, wasn't like, you know, but gently, it's a simile there, like a dove. I can't help myself, sorry. Uh, in verse 11, and a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. The declaration, you are my beloved son. This is a huge prophecy in the Old Testament. One of the most notable goes to Psalm 2, which is also the coronation prophecy regarding Christ. Remember, Psalm 2, the nations are raging against the Lord and His anointed. And God says He's going to put His anointed on the throne anyway. Psalm 2, verse 6, As for me... I have set my king on Zion. Notice my holy hill here. So I, I have, God says, I've installed my king. I've established him in his rule. And I will tell you of the decree. Here's what the Lord said to me. So now here's what the anointed Christ heard. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. The declaration, you are my son, continues this enthronement imagery that this is the one who is to be king over heaven and earth. And so then the picture for us in Jesus' baptism is a pointing to prophecy. Remember that we have in these first few verses this declaration. This is the good news of Jesus. This is the one that we have been waiting for. This is the beginning of the gospel. And we have the one, John the baptizer, who is the messenger who prepares his way. And so calling for all people, get ready for the Lord's coming. And the next scene that is given to us is the baptism scene. And it is a scene then that is a description of who he is. That this is the one who has come down from heaven as if the heavens had been torn apart and God himself has intervened. It is pictured as a coronation scene. That here he is now taking his rightful place on the throne as ruler and God declaring that. Not only in the the scene that is given how it's pictured of the, the spirit descending on him like Isaiah 11. But the very words of God himself. That this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And think about those words for a moment and what the Lord is saying in regards to Christ. You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. This declaration has a number of important layers in describing who Jesus is. Number one, not only is this describing the coronation of Jesus as king and ruler, but is a description that he will succeed by saying with him, I am well pleased. 
is directly indicating he will succeed in being what God has called him to be. He will fulfill the mission. He will be pleasing to God, which is what Isaiah 11 said. When the Spirit of the Lord is upon him, he will delight in him. That is the picture that we have of this one. Is He is the one who shows the true love of the Father. He is the one whose delight is in the Father, and as such, the Father's delight is in him. The contrast is neat because there's another place in scriptures where there is an entity that is called God's son. And if you've been with us in Exodus, you know, that's Israel. Israel is called God's son. We see that in Exodus chapter four. We see in Hosea 11, one out of Egypt, I called my son. Here is this picture of Israel is the God's son, this chosen favored relationship. And yet, how did Israel do in being well-pleasing to God? Uh, It failed. And that's the problem. Is that all that we see, I mean, you've been with us in Exodus, we had problems before we even got to Mount Sinai, is that they are not showing that they are well-pleasing to God, that their delight is not in God. We just looked at in chapter 32 this last week that what is Israel doing but thrusting aside Moses and turning their hearts back to Egypt. And so God's son is rebelling here and is failing in the mission and is not well-pleasing. This is the contrast then and given to Jesus. This is my beloved son. He will do everything that God has said. He will fulfill the law perfectly. He will love the Lord perfectly. He will be the delight of the Father in every way. There is nothing that will be unpleasing about Him. In fact, John's Gospel highlights that many times. The Father is always with me because I always do what is pleasing to the Father. Jesus would go about proclaiming that he is unique in that capacity. No one else could ever say that the father is pleased with me because I always do what is pleasing to the father. But upon Jesus, as the heavens are torn apart and the spirit comes down, the voices, this is my beloved son. This is the one whom I love with him. I am well pleased. It is a picture of his success because he will be pleasing to the Father in all that he does, in everything that he says, in all of his teachings, and in all of his actions. Everything that he does will be pleasing to the Father. He will not fail in the mission. Israel fails in what it was called to be as a light to the nations and salvation to the ends of the earth. It fails. Jesus will not fail the mission. Jesus will be everything that God has called him to be, which notice that Isaiah 42 is the summary of that idea. Here's Isaiah's prophecy again about the servant Christ. Behold, my servant whom I'm upholding, my chosen In whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him and he will bring forth justice to the nations. 
Notice a combination of all of those concepts in just that one sentence. He is the servant. God is pleased in him. He is the chosen one. He delights in him. My spirit is on him and he's going to rule. He's going to bring justice to the nations. He's going to reign as king and he will succeed. God's delight in this suffering servant in every aspect of what Jesus does shows that he's going to succeed in the work given to him. Please bear that in mind as you keep the pictures and knowledge of Jesus in mind and heart. That everything that he said and everything that he did and everything that happened was exactly as God planned. And everything that happened was a way that Jesus was still a delight to the Father. Even in the crucifixion, even in the betrayal, in all that happens, there is nothing that is going outside of the plan of God. This is the one in whom God delights in. And everything that He says and does is exactly according to God's purpose and according to God's will. And thus then God's glory is displayed in Him. If I had 30 more minutes with you, John 1, the fullness of His glory that's seen in Him. We could go to Isaiah 49, Hebrews 1. He is the radiance of God. Everything you see in Jesus then is the display of God Himself. You've seen God. If you see Jesus, if you see Him in this light of who He is, then you have seen the fullness of God. And that's the argument the New Testament authors make over and over again. When the disciples ask Him, just show us the Father, it is enough. Jesus says, have you been with Me all this time and you don't understand? If you've seen Me, you've seen the Father. He is the exact imprint of God the Father, as Hebrews 1 says is a beautiful picture of what is being declared before we read anything about what Jesus will do, about any of His teachings, anything in this Gospel. Mark stops the story right here and says, I want you to know something, that everything you read is a picture of how God is delighted in this One and He is glorified through this One. Everything He says and everything He does, He is a delight to God and displays the glory of God. One final picture. This voice from heaven, You are my beloved Son. It is a statement that occurs very similar back in the Old Testament as well. There is an amazing scene that happens in the life of Abraham. Where in chapter 22, you have God testing Abraham. And he says to take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. Notice this beloved son connection. That God says it just like that. This is the son whom you love. As God says, this is the Son whom I love. Go to the land of Moriah and offer Him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. We later read that Abraham arises early the next morning with his son. 
collects the wood, and off they go on their journey to Mount Moriah, as Abraham is going to do exactly what God has commanded him to do. Along the way, Isaac makes an observation. And Isaac says, we have wood. We have everything that it appears that we need to have for a sacrifice except one thing. We don't have an animal. Where is the lamb that we are going to offer for this sacrifice? And Abraham's answer is breathtaking. God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. Abraham says, God is going to solve that problem. Don't worry about that. God will provide for himself the sacrifice. God will provide for himself the lamb that is needed. As the scene unfolds, as Abraham binds Isaac, lays him on the altar, takes out his knife, and raises his hand to the air, God intervenes at that moment and tells Abraham to stop, for now I know that you are obedient and will submit and be faithful to all that I've said. Passing the test. And then there is a ram that is found in the thicket, and that ram is offered as a sacrifice. But what Abraham says about all that is highly instructive. And so Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. That Abraham recognized in a prophetic way The Lord will provide for Himself the Lamb that will be needed. And what is amazing about the connection is here is Abraham. And here is his only son Isaac, the one whom you love. And as now Abraham takes Isaac to go offer him, God stops that process. And it was to be a reflection of of what our Father in Heaven would do. Where our Father would provide a sacrifice for Himself and take the beloved Son, the Son whom He loves, and He will be the Lamb that will be offered to take away the sins of the world. In describing Jesus here as the one whom I love, the beloved Son, there is a picture of this relationship not only of love, but a picture of how God will provide a sacrifice for the world. To conclude, I wanted just to see all of the images of Jesus in just this one scene of baptism of Jesus. Number one, He is pictured as the one who has come to rescue and save the world. Isaiah prophesies, oh, that God would come down and rescue and save. Oh, that God would bring about a new exodus and save the world. And here Jesus is pictured as that one, as the heavens are torn open. And God is pictured as coming down. Number two, Jesus is pictured as the king, ruler over all creation. 
as here he is now taking his scene as he is enthroned because of the words that are given to him, you are my son, as well as the event of the Spirit of the Lord coming down upon him, indicating this is the anointed one. He is the king. He is the one to bring justice and righteousness to the world. Number three, Jesus is the one with whom God is well pleased. No one else could be spoken of that way. And in that regard, Jesus then will succeed where Israel in the past has failed. And might I say, Jesus succeeds where we even ourselves fail. He will perfectly obey God's will and be the one in whom God delights, completing the father's mission. And then finally, for the father to say, you are my son. You are my beloved son that God will provide for himself a sacrifice. And through that sacrifice, God is going to rescue the world. What Mark does in such brevity is pour all of the prophecies of Isaiah into the baptism of Jesus and puts him forward and says, do you see that Jesus is my beloved son in whom I delight And if the Father delights in Him, then we must delight in Him as well. He is to be our joy. He is to be our life. He is to be our very everything because of who He is. He is the Son, He is the King, and He is the Savior. We are called then to acknowledge Jesus as the Son of God as King of heaven and earth who sits on the throne to acknowledge Him as the beloved Son, to acknowledge Him as the one that we will take delight in. Will you love the Son for who He is? And will you love the Son for all that He has given? For He volunteers to be the sacrifice for sin, the perfect Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We already have one I am excited to announce who's going to be baptized for the forgiveness of her sins after services this morning. And it's an opportunity for you as well to do likewise. Will you take advantage of this moment to see Jesus as the Son of God, the Savior and King, in whom you will delight and follow with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Won't you come now while we stand and while we sing?